Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the program, David Bellis of the Hong Kong history website guulo.com uncovers some of the secrets of Hill Road in Chek Tong Choi. But first, the birth of a child is one of the most important events in traditional Chinese society. But before the advent of modern healthcare, the infant mortality rate was high. To give children blessings and protection and the best start in life, a child would be dressed in clothes with auspicious symbols to give them good health and fortune, and to repel evil spirits. The Hong Kong Heritage Museum in Daiwai is showing an exhibition of children's clothing, shoes, and headgear dating back 100 years. Curator Brian Lam gave me a tour. This exhibition is jointly presented by the Leisure and Cultural Services Department and also the、um, Memorial Museum of the Generalissimo Sunyasen Mansion in Guangzhou. All the Objects on, objects on display in this、uh, exhibition are on loan from、uh, the Sunset Museum in Guangzhou and also from a private collector,、uh, the Lai Dongtong in United States. The Lai Dongtong、um, collection、uh, comprises uh, the, ex-、uh, the exhibits.、Um, uh, spanning from the Qing Dynasty to the Republican period. They are lovely. I mean, it's extraordinary looking at these items to think that they were ever worn. I mean, very intricate embroidery, all the motifs that we're going to be having a look at. But、um, beautiful items of clothing, anyway. And considering that they're children's, they're not, they're not adults. They're, they're children's items. Would you have had to be very rich to have these type of clothes? This.、Um Items are solely from the, the wealthy family, but some of the items also from the, the family in the rural society. So,、um, for those、uh, items which are richly embroidered with the auspicious、uh, motif, will be from the、uh, wealthy family, for sure. Yeah. During the Qing Dynasty, of course,、mm. um, in China, like other areas of the world, it's an era before antibiotics. It's an era where there was a lot of child mortality. So, were some of these motifs to protect children? Yes,、um, in the past, since、um, the child、um, mortality rate is high, was high due to the the poor hygiene conditions and also、um, the medical backwardness.、Um, you know, in in the old days,、uh, the weather forecasting at least not good, so the、uh, the drought and、uh, flooding we also kill a lot. People and have diverse effects on the produce from the from the from the fields. So the famine will also uh, uh, cause uh, the high mortality rate in in the, in the community. Against this background, so the the people will will have、um, this kind of the、uh, clothing with richly uh, decorated with the、uh, auspicious motif for the children, since they want to give the additional protection to the children. Some of the motifs also have the symbolic meaning、uh, of long life and good health and a bright future, as well as being really quite stunning pieces of clothing. So, where would you like to start, Brian, on describing a couple of these motifs? You know, the Chinese people they see the new arrival of the newborn baby, the most joyful event in the family. So they will prepare the、uh, baby's、uh, clothing before the baby come to the family. I mean,、um, the expectant、uh, women、uh, she will help, she will start sewing the baby's clothing when she know she knew that、uh, she was、uh, conceived. The baby's clothing on display in this gallery, including the headwear and also the bit collar, and an apron, a baby carrier, and also the upper garments and trousers. In this showcase, you can see many、um, um, headgear, headwear that 
actually was made in the form of the animal and livestock. So, I mean, if you were a rural woman in China, you also had to be very good at sewing. <laughs> yes, the women in in the past, the women was very skillful in sewing the, the clothing. Since you know, in the old days, all the um, clothing on daily uh, item was uh, were handmade, and then the the women really to prepare the clothing for the baby, and also they have to prepare some uh, clothing for themselves as well. It's stunning. I mean, as you said, you pointed out the tiger head, but you say, I mean, it's got the tiger at the uh, the top, but all sorts of embroidery going round and uh, several of the headgear up here I mean it's it's very detailed um, lots of as you say motifs there's flowers there's uh, animals there's fruit is this fruit here yes the fruit actually the fruit uh, that means uh, they will they're representing that um, uh, the family will have the uh, abundant offspring in the coming generations that's so they will have the fruit um, uh, on the top of this head, uh, baby's head and this headgear would that have just been worn uh, for ceremonies, or would that have been worn on a daily basis? They are worn in a daily basis. Of course, uh, some of the, the uh, beautiful headwear was uh, purposely made for the ceremony. And also, you can see some symbolism uh, used in this uh, headgear. For example, you can see the fullness on the top of this uh, baby's head. Oh, yes, a phoenix. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, this phoenix is a, f- a three-dimensional one, so you can see actually like a bird uh, sitting on the baby's ha- uh, head. And then below the f- uh, the phoenix is uh, used as a, an auspicious motif, mostly uh, used in the wedding uh, gifts and the bridal item. When the people use the phoenix on this uh, baby's item, they will bring out the auspicious meaning like good fortune, good health, the very bright career in the future. So these were all the hopes yeah. that were put. And this would have been for a boy? This is for the boys around uh, the age of five to six, yeah. Oh, so a little boy would have wandered around with that? If there's a small boy, they will use some kind of the, the cap, the small cap, and then uh, the, with a sim, uh, much more simple design. For the, um, the boy with the age of five to six, and then they will use a, uh, this kind of the, the beautifully uh, decorated uh, headwear. And this red one next to it? This is also the, the winter hood. Actually, it's for the newborn baby. That's a very small one. And then on this hood, you can see there's uh, some legendary figures embodied uh, um, on, 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 on the both sides. What kind of legendary figures? They call the Zhang Yun. That means uh, the one who won the, the highest title in the imperial examination. So with these uh, figures on this hood, the parents will convey the wishes that their children, when they grow up, they can also win the highest uh, title in the imperial examination. So setting up quite a lot of exam pressure early mm-hmm. on. <laughs> yeah. So those are the headgear over there. And over here we've got the tops and trousers, although say, just saying top sounds very casual for what we're looking at, which are, uh, as I say, lovely children's garments. And the three men, the three figures on the front there, can you tell me about those, Brian? Oh, these three um, figures actually are the three uh, start gods. The three star gods uh, comprises uh, the god of fortune, the god of the emolument, and then also the god of the longevity. 
And then with this fee cycle, uh, the parents uh, hope that their children will have the protection from 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 their magic power, and then they will they will have the good fortune, and then they will got a very successful career in future, and also they will have long life. That's all. This all the blessing will be will be represented by this fee cycle motif. So that's a jacket and trouser suit with the three star gods. Um, so these items that we're looking at, how old are they? Mm, they are around 100 years history. I mean, they, they were worn in the Qing Dynasty. I'm talking with Brian Lam here at the Hong Kong Heritage Museum in Daiwai. We're looking at the exhibition, Wearable Blessings, Traditional Chinese Children's Clothing. Brian, if people would like to come to the exhibition, when is it on until... This exhibition will be on display till the 21st of March. And then uh, our museum will close on uh, Tuesdays, and then we'll open from 10 to 6 on weekdays, and from 10 to 7 during the weekends. What I find amazing is considering that, I mean, obviously some of these would have been owned by wealthy families, some not, um, but it's just really quite stunning colours as well. You've got these... Uh, a very deep blue, almost like a moving to purple over there, and um, so great, great dyeing techniques as well. Yes, um, they will use the red and blue um, mainly for the children's uh, clothing. You know, for the Chinese people, red is uh, the most auspicious uh, color for some uh, happy, uh, uh, some celebration and uh, festive event. And also, we can see some blue clothing in this exhibition. And since in the uh, in the dialect from the in the north, Tang uh, China, blues also have the same sound of the lan lan. That means the stop. That means I uh, use the blue. Uh, they can use this color to express the, the meaning that uh, they can stop all the evil spirit or other um, harmful uh, creature to approach the children. Among these collection, as you say, that comes from uh, partly from Guangdong, but also, uh, as you say, this American collector as well. But is this uh, the items that we're looking at? Have they come from throughout China, the different provinces? Yes, um, this is, uh, the exhibition in this exhibition are collected uh, in different provinces across China. So some of them are obviously from the northern China. Just like one section of this exhibition uh, feature the basin cover. Actually, the basin cover is the vital item uh, in the Shanxi province. When the bride was uh, brought to the bridegroom's uh, family, she also had this uh, basin cover as her vital item. Uh, and there was a newborn baby to come to the family. They will convert this uh, basin cover into uh, the baby, a baby's apron. I would say, so the baby's apron would, uh, so what, like a, around yeah. the waist type oh. idea? Yes, the advanced way, that's actually the underwear for the, for ah, the baby. Right. Here you can see the basin cover. Actually, it has a dark background and with the lion motif at the center. Around it, uh, you can see the, the, the object holding by the, the eight immortals. Uh, since in the Chinese tradition, they believe that the, the eight immortals is the most powerful uh, gods. So their objects had also have the power to expel the evil spirits and then to, to give the blessing to the, the baby. So over here we've actually got um, uh, little children's shoes. 
Yeah, so you can also on this um, shoes you can see some uh, beautiful uh, motif. When the people use this bad motif on the shoes, that means they want to um, convey the auspicious um, meaning that uh, the the, uh, the fortune will be given to the to the baby. Now, if you had several children, once the one child outgrew the shoes, would they then be passed on to the next child? Yes, in the old days, the, the, the children's clothing will be reused among the children. But uh, also, the uh, parental family, they will also make a set of new clothing to the baby on the day of uh, the, uh, they call the full moon day. That means uh, one month after uh, the day of birth. They will also present the baby with a, a newly made uh, clothing to, as a present to him. My thanks to curator Brian Lam at the Hong Kong Heritage Museum in Daiwai. The exhibition, Wearable Blessings, Traditional Chinese Children's Clothing, is on show at the museum until March the 21st. Late last year, David Bellis of history website Gwulo.com gave me a tour of some former air raid tunnels from the Second World War. One was at Hill Road in Shektong Choi, and David and I headed back there as he had uncovered some secrets there that he wanted to tell me about. Here we are, back again. Yes, we're just by where, where I showed you that old air raid tunnel before. So we're very close to Hill Road, and Hill Road's got a few more secrets to, to tell us today. So the first thing is, if you look down Hill Road, it's very un-Hong Kong-like. It's very wide and open. And actually, if you look behind you, it's also this big open space. Now, behind you, the excuse is there. It's the playground for primary school. But what's going on down below us? Well, Hill Road doesn't really want to be a road. It wants to be a river. So if I can show you an old map here, uh, this is a map from 1845. It's a lovely, great, big hand-painted map. And you can just see this river running down here. So when uh, British started building up around this area, the river was in the way, they would put it into a stone-lined channel and make it a nullar. So Hill Road Nullar runs down the middle here of the, of the road. It's all covered over now. We can't see it. You've got to spare a thought for the men who used to build these nullers, because if you come here in winter and you look at a stream in Hong Kong, it's a gentle little trickle. But after one of the big summer storms, it's this raging torrent. So we've got some pictures here of this district in 1926. And you can see it's just complete carnage. It's, there was this huge rainstorm. According to the Hong Kong Observatory, 19th of July 1926 experienced the highest daily rainfall, a record of 534 millimetres, so half a metre of rain in one day. That's extraordinary. It's incredible. So it's not surprising that the river here would have been a torrent and it just carved up the, the nullar, the road, rocks and damage everywhere. Yeah, you can see really where the torrent is. So it's taken away uh, a lot of the fabric on the side of the nullar. Now tell me, I mean, I get very used to the, like, the Kaitak nullar. It, it's, it's, it's become a part of my vocabulary over the years here. But what is a nullar? It's funny, isn't it? Yes, it's an Indian word, and it means a stream, and especially a stream with, with sharp banks. So it's a, a stream in a dry area where there's a sudden flash flood and it carves those steep streams. So it's a natural streams. phenomenon, it's not a man-made one. Well, back in India, it would have been, yes. And I'd guess when the engineers first came here, they'd be part of the colonial service and they'd have that Indian heritage, and some of these words just slip into our vocabulary. So it can be a natural stream? Yes, that's right. If you were in India and you were talking about a nullar, you'd be talking about a natural stream. So the nullar that's here is actually where, is that now where the road is? It is. It's, it runs underneath the playground and down the road and it curves, curves 
around at the bottom of the hill, and it empties out into the cargo basin at the bottom. So there was a nullah here. There still is a nullah here at certain times, like when it rains. Fortunately, the rain that started this morning seems to have cleared up for us. But uh, what other secrets have you discovered here? Let's go down the hill a little bit, and on the corner we'll see the, the little park. But when you look at the park, again, you think, it's a bit of an over-engineered park. It's on this lovely great stone wall, and it's got this uh, very solid wall all around it. When we get there, I'll show you the old maps, and we'll see what it used to be. It's also very quiet along here for Hong Kong. It's oddly peaceful, isn't it? I think it's because it's a school holiday. We're just below two primary schools, so if you're here at this time of day on a normal school day, you'd have trouble hearing yourself talk. So here we are. I don't know if you can, can see the, the platform is built so solidly around the front. It's got this granite wall, and we can see the outline. This would have been the entrance here. It's covered over now. It's still this very solid wall all around it. So let's pop inside, and I'll show you the maps. So we've just entered into a little park off Hill Road. If we look at this area on a, a later map, 1924, you can see it's marked Public Mortuary. So that's what the entrance was leading into. I've got a, a newspaper clipping here from 1904. They just finished the building. In the future, when the Institute is occupied, the buildings in Hill Street will be reserved for morgue purposes. But in the meantime, all the work of Dr Hunter, the bacteriologist in Hong Kong, and his Chinese staff is centred there. So Dr Hunter was a bacteriologist brought out from Britain and he was part of the government response to plague. And one of his requests or demands really, I guess, for coming out here was the, he had a laboratory built for him to work in. So that's the building that's now the Museum of Medical Sciences. And if you go there, you can see exhibitions about all of his work. Yeah, it's a lovely building as well. It's a super brick building. But yes, of course, 1894, devastating bubonic plague in Hong Kong. Um, and then trying to work out, was it the fleas? Was it the rats? Was it the close living? All, all three elements. Now, I mean, brave man in those days. I mean, obviously a scientist wanted to find out, but still, um, the extraordinary sort of dangers involved in trying to track the plague. Yes, imagine having to deal with those illnesses on a, a daily basis. Not just plague as well. Let me read you a little bit more, and he, he talks about the work he was doing. So before that was finished in 1905, they used the building here uh, for about nine months. So in Hill Road? In Hill Road, that's right. So the, the newspaper man has gone there. He's describing the inside. He says, there are two large chambers which have been set apart as the mortuary. Each chamber has 16 slate tables and all the appliances necessary for such a place are installed. Two of the tables, when the press man went round the buildings the other day, were covered with dead rats of all sizes. They had been operated on with the object of finding out whether there was any infectious disease about the colony, and lay there waiting for the result. Every day in the year, special men are catching rats in every district of the city. Now and then a rat is killed in the public street, and even it is sent to the mortuary. A label is attached to its tail, showing when and where it was killed. And then the bacteriologist comes in. Should the slightest evidence of plague, cholera or other contagious disease appear in the heart or spleen, the place whence the rat showing these symptoms came is disinfected, outside and in. It's a canon that when disease is about to appear in the city, it first makes itself known through the medium of rats. The rats of Hong Kong are like railway fog signals or weather forecasts. Indeed, they're also rather more reliable than the clerk of the weather as a rule. <laughs> 
I'm talking with David Bellis of history website grulo.com. We're here in Hill Road. And uh, now when we look back at the issue of rats, I know that previously when you've shown me some of your fascinating history photos, you've got a real thing about rat bins. <laughs> I was wondering if you'd remember that. Yes. So we came across the rat bins first. They were hung on the lampposts. You do your civic duty, and if you saw a dead rat, you'd have to drop it in the rat bin. Uh. So if you think... Uh, I, thought, I thought I was brave dealing with cockroaches. Well, if you think you're having a hard day at work, <laughs> <laughs> the government rat collector's job was to go around every bin twice a day, collecting uh. all the rats and bringing them back for the bacteriologist. If you, dear listener, is fascinated about this as I am, if you go to that museum, they've got a little um, diorama set out there showing you the, the rats and the rat bin. Well, yes, I mean, the thing is that we may be a bit of a repulsed by the whole idea, but, I mean, of course, in Wan Chai and lots of other areas, particularly areas with restaurants, I still see any number of rats. I go through the Aberdeen fish market in order to, uh, sometimes wading through as well, in order to get my ferry home, and there'll be, there'll be rats suddenly appear underneath the pallets, and, and, and you, yeah, you keep a sharp, a sharp eye out, and uh, the, the cats are quite fat around there, you know. But uh, generally, uh, you know, rats were such uh, an appalling problem at that time. So in 1905, they set up the Bacteriological Institute. Um, and as you say, you can now go and see this as a museum, Hong Kong Museum of Medical Sciences. And it's, it's well worth a visit. I once went there and they had, um, this is just a complete aside, uh, they had this fantastic dental equipment from years gone by. And I'm so pleased that I'm born in this era for my teeth. Let's just pop over the road and we'll have a look at Clarence Terrace. We're down on Clarence Terrace now, just next to the market, Sektong Choi. If you want the best vegetables, I recommend the lady on the right on the mezzanine floor. Now, normally this is a, it's a little cul-de-sac. Got some trees along, very quiet. A bit noisy at the moment, there's a construction site in front. But if you'd lived here on the 14th of May, 1934, you'd have thought all hell broke loose. Here's the report. At 11.05 in the morning, a large gasometer with a capacity of 500,000 cubic feet belonging to the Hong Kong and China Gas Company at West Point exploded the flaming gas setting light to houses in Clarence Terrace, Chun Sing Street and Yu On Terrace. In all, 42 persons were killed or died from injuries received and a large number injured, five houses completely gutted. So here's a, a photo that was taken just shortly afterwards. And you can see on the left we've got the buildings of Clarence Terrace and they're just a stone's throw away from the gasometer so the, the damage must have been terrible. And in the picture, you can still see the, the burning buildings at the, the bottom of the hill. So this is all from 1934. What was the fallout from that? In the papers, they talked about the need to move the gasometer somewhere less populated. And a gasometer is? gasometer is that giant round structure that stores all the gas. And they did. They set up gasometers in Kennedy Town. So the reason a lot of the things that we're talking about, the mortuary, the gasometers, are here is because this is kind of the distant, away from the city part of town. A little less populated? A little less populated and perhaps also populated by people who wouldn't be making such a fuss if there were you know, nasty things in the area. So they just did the same again, really. They sort of pushed the problem a bit further west, over to Kennedy Town. And we see it. There's a, a gasometer appears in Kennedy Town. But as far as I can tell, the gasometer stayed here for a long time afterwards as well, so they didn't actually solve the problem. So we talked about this big open area down the middle of Hill Street and if you come here in the middle of the seventh lunar month, the Hungry Ghost Festival they set up one of those big bamboo opera stages here 
And of course, there's a big audience of people listening, but those operas are really meant for the ghosts. They're entertainment for the ghosts. And all these years I've thought, well, you put it here because of the big empty space. But now I'm wondering if there's a connection. You've got the, the people who died here, the 42 people died in the explosion. You've got the mortuary just up above. And so whether this was considered a especially important area for ghosts, and that's why they, they run it here. So if, if anyone happens to know, it'd be something I'd love to, to, to know about. Yes, uh, that does, yeah, it does, it does resonate with a bit of common sense, though, mm. in terms of um, it, the idea also with the gasometer, gasometer is that they've died accidentally, mm. um, you know. Um, Suddenly and yes, without all the preparation. violence, yes. That's right. Yes, that, that uh, yeah, that could be. So the, so the actual opera troupe comes at Hungry Ghost Festival, so around August every year. And uh, I've been also to, when they do these uh, Jew festivals, um, uh, every 10 years in Canton or every seven years in some other areas. And the first, uh, first night, they play to a completely empty, huge match shed uh, uh, theatre. Uh, the idea being, yes, that ah. they're playing to the ancestors, they're playing to the ghosts. Okay. So that, that it too, so that it's not empty, it's full. You just yes. can't see them. Exactly. Well, I was reading about the ones that they put on the Hungry Ghost and they usually are packed with people, but they say you're supposed to leave the front row empty, and that's again so the ghosts get the best view. Anyway, enough of the, the morgues and the morbid subjects. Let's go down right to the bottom of the hill and something a bit brighter and more lively. Where we're walking down now, we've got the market on our right and a raised wall on our left. This was the original Little Clarence Terrace, so it ran up one side of the nuller, and then behind that big wall on the left, that's the big nuller, and then the road on the far left... That's the original Hill Road. Was Clarence another civil servant? That's a good point. I don't know where that name comes from. There's a Witty Street near here, and Mr Witty was a official <laughs> in the gas company. Oh, right. So that's the connection there. I'm not sure if Clarence was as well. Where would you like Bellis Street to be? Where would I put Bellis Street? <laughs> Somewhere with lots of post boxes and fire hydrants, I suppose, and maybe an air raid shelter at the bottom of the road. <laughs> So we're just carrying on down Clarence Terrace, past the laundrette, and uh, near to a stop for HKU Station or the University of Hong Kong Station, past the MTR here. I'm talking with David Bellis from the history website grulo.com. We've just headed down Clarence Terrace, and we're here in the Hill Road area looking at some of the secrets that David's uncovered here. Yeah, the entrance to the MTR it's in this little flat area at the bottom of the hill and it's where the old market used to be so before the, the modern market over there I've got some pictures of the area from around the 1920s and they are surprisingly well lit there's one from night time all the buildings got their lights it looks um, well, just a very sort of festive, attractive area to be and at this time 1920s Hill Street is the entertainment district of Hong Kong, and that's sort of used in a polite way. Here's a description from <laughs> Cheng Po Hong, who's a, an expert on old photos. Yes, he's, a, he's done a wonderful job in Hong Kong. This is one of his books, and he's describing the area. And he says, what got um, Sek Tong Choi going was the beginning of the history of the night entertainment quarter in Sek Tong Choi. As people started to gather in the area, brothels, hotels and restaurants sprang up, and it became an important political, commercial meeting and gathering place what got the area going was a, a government order taking the brothels that used to be over by Possession Street and moving them 
out here, out to the west. So it started at the beginning so of... it's the gasometer, now it's the brothels. It's got everything, hasn't it? Everything you'd need. Ah, you think that's why there's all the gas lighting on the buildings here? Maybe they got a special rate, I'm not sure. So he writes, 1906 marked the beginning of the history of the night entertainment quarter in Sektong Choi. As people started to gather in the area, brothels, hotels and restaurants sprang up. This rather abnormal development came to a halt in 1935, when the Hong Kong government prohibited prostitution, and the area that had developed so quickly vanished like a puff of smoke. I always find the history of prostitution really interesting in Hong Kong, the moral barometer, mm. um, despite the fact that, you know, whether you make it legal or illegal, it's always going to be here. So, uh, um, but uh, yeah, that's it. so it was actually made illegal in 1935. Yes, but if you, if you read the newspapers from just after that, there are all these sort of coded adverts. Yeah. It's obviously, as you say, it never goes away. <laughs> Lady available for conversation? Or... That's right, Lady available, <laughs> yes, French lessons, all these... <laughs> There's a lady who lives near here, um, is a journalist, and she says she interviewed a lady, I think in her 80s, 90s, who'd been a prostitute in the area here. And, uh, oh, she said it was a fantastic conversation and the lady was just, just full of beans about it all, not, not sort of shy or embarrassed. It's an interview I'm hoping to hear one day. My thanks to David Bellis of Hong Kong history website, grulo.com. Do take a look at his website for 20,000 pages of history insights. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.